Hello and welcome to another episode of The Code of Career with me, Cameron Blackwood. Today's guest is Laura Belmain. Laura's career in the technology industry saw her start as an apprentice at HM Revenue and Customs. Since then, she's gone on to specialise in cybersecurity and now runs her own company, SafeStack. The majority of the episodes so far on The Code of Career have focused on web development. So today's episode will be a bit of a change in pace and it'll be quite an interesting one, I think. Laura's got some really cool stories about her time in cybersecurity and can tell us about what web developers need to know about security. Quick reminder to review and rate the podcast on the platform of your choice. It makes a huge difference in the algorithm. But without further ado, here is my conversation with Laura Belmain. Hey, Laura, thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's uh, my absolute pleasure. And it's really exciting that you are by far the furthest away guest I've ever had on a show. I think we must be more or less on exact opposite sides of the uh, the world. So wh- where in the world are you? I am in the very far north of New Zealand. So it's subtropical and it's very early in the morning here. Uh, so yeah, in I think we're opposites in every single way. Uh, geography, weather, um, time of day, everything. Pretty much. Yeah. I, what I can say is, and it is a running joke on the code of career that the weather is always sideways rain in Edinburgh, no matter, no matter what the, uh, the time of year is on the show, it is always uh, sideways rain. I'd love to go to New Zealand one day. That is definitely um, on the bucket list. Just to all the whole country would be incredible. So you said it's sub, subtropical. So is it, is it very warm at the moment? Because I guess it's kind of end of your uh, summer, right? Yeah, we're in autumn now. We're about Mm-hmm. Uh, four weeks into autumn um, and there's four different climate zones in New Zealand um, the very mm-hmm. top is subtropical so kind of like the Pacific Islands so up here it's cold for autumn so it's 15 degrees at seven o'clock in the morning um, so it's not cold at all really um, but down south um, down in Queenstown the bottom of the south island they're currently having snow so oh wow yeah yeah who knows <laughs> what I'd give for 15 degrees right now honestly what I'd give for that uh, so, that's um, like a balmy Edinburgh summer right <laughs> yeah it's that's just pretty much I mean to be fair I end up sunburned at 15 degrees but um yeah that's pretty much as hot as it gets here um so in in terms of uh what you do uh day to day this is very cool for me because again in another first this is the first time that we've had a guest on who's quite focused on cybersecurity, which is an area I'm really keen to learn more about. So that's your niche, but what, what do you do specifically? So I'm a strange sort of hybrid. So cybersecurity is vast. It's kind of like saying I'm moving to Europe. There's a lot of options and all very different. So I'm in very specific niche of application security. So my role in the world, what I do is I work with very fast-paced dev teams all around the world uh, to try and help them put security through what they're doing in the same way that we put through performance and scaling and usability. So um, very small subsection of uh, security and it's the bit where it really tightly meshes with how we all want to build amazing software. Fantastic, cool. And so to take it a little bit back um, and talking about how you broke into technology originally, did you always want to do cybersecurity or was it just generally you want to do tech? No, absolutely no. And I didn't even want to do tech. Um, so oh, I, wow. I, as you can tell by the accent, uh, like many Kiwis, I wasn't born here. I was born in the UK near Birmingham. Um, and I thought I was going to be Scully from the X-Files. Or if that didn't work out, I was going to own an ice cream shop in a teeny tiny village in Wales that I'd fallen in love with as a kid. And it was only when I turned 17 and I needed to uh, find some ways to pay some bills that I found an apprenticeship in software development for the Inland Revenue. And so 
I went from being, you know, learning foreign languages and thinking I was going to maybe be a lawyer or, you know, some strange doctor one day to um, ending up being the youngest COBOL intern that the Inland Revenue had ever had at the grand age of 17. And I've kind of never looked back. Um, I've done everything from real-time radiation monitoring software at CERN in Switzerland through um, Enterprise Java. I don't ever want to do that ever, ever again. Um, through to being now I do mostly Python and kind of the more dynamic scripting languages. So, yeah, never thought I'd get here, but I'm loving it that I am. Do you know what's funny? I reckon, I reckon 75% of the guests say they never want to get into technology we do occasionally get someone who was like yeah i was coding from the age of eight on a laptop my parents gave me you know all the rest of it but like for, for me my, my personal story um i never thought tech was me i thought you had to be amazing at maths or something like that i went um funnily enough you mentioned birmingham i went to university of birmingham studied business um up there more or less just drank pints for three years <laughs> didn't do a lot of work no, but i um, can't judge my... i can't judge <laughs> A lot of my best mates uh, were actually doing comp sci. So I got a rough idea of what I wanted to do. Um, and then, so I jumped into technology recruitment because I figured, hey, the, these guys are making good money. I could probably make good money placing them into jobs. And then I realized actually how hard it is to be a good tech recruiter. And I wanted to scratch the itch of like thinking, God, you know, these people are making good money and it sounds like what they're working on is really cool. I wonder if I could do this. And yeah, I just went and taught myself basically using free online resources and uh, yeah, ended up realizing that actually it did scratch an itch for me and it gave me that feeling that I hadn't had since building Lego as a kid. Um, and I was like, oh, wow, I can get paid for this. This is awesome. And yeah, I'd never considered absolutely. it. And I, I was sort of mid twenties and I was like, yeah, this is exactly for me. And yeah, haven't, haven't looked back, similar case. <laughs> it's really interesting. Um, I, I, look at many I've worked with engineers all around the world thousands of them and there's this universal thing that we love to solve problems we love to build things now I got that from my granddad he used to be the kind of granddad where you would go to his house and you go ah I want to build a say sledge or you know whatever in the garden and he'd just appear with pieces of things and you never knew where they'd come from but the whole point was you just put them together into a thing. And later I learned that he'd been dismantling my grandma's furniture without telling her. But <laughs> at the time, what it gave was this kind of passion for, I can solve any problem. I can build anything if I just look at it in a different way. So I, I think it's awesome that we've all found pathways in the digital world that allow us to still do that. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that we don't always get into it straight on the, on the same path where it's, you know, you mentioned being a lawyer earlier about how, you know, you have to do certain things, certain qualifications. Um, it's not kind of, uh, there, there's no two ways of being a lawyer. You, you, you just go one way. And mm. what I love about the technology industry is that because people have come from so many different backgrounds, um, both professionally and personally, it means that the products we create are so different um, from and yeah. the solutions and the approaches we have are so different because people will just think about approaches problems in different ways and that's what I love about it I always assumed uh, before I got into it there's only one right answer but there's so many right answers and it's so much more creative than people give it credit for this as a security person I sometimes wish there was only one right answer it'd be a lot <laughs> easier to secure all these systems if they look the same um, but no absolutely it's, it's it's a glorious mess let's let's face it we've all written code at some point that we wish wasn't on the internet anymore and that's what it is you know we are a massive network of connections between software and people um 
all of which was built in different ways at different times. And it's a glorious mess, but one that I want to really make sure that we secure because it's important. Yeah, uh, my, my GitHub contributions from 2017 are a bit of a running joke on this show um, in right, terms good. of their quality. <laughs> and actually, to be fair, the security vulnerabilities as well, because I've had a couple of emails saying, hey, just so you know, this is open and it shouldn't be. I'm like, oh, crikey. And I've like, managed to <laughs> luckily uh, manage to get rid of it. But invariably, it's me forgetting to add uh, my .m files in my uh, React applications uh, into my gitignore, which is so easily done and for some reason um node based command line tools often don't warn you about that and i really wish they would but you would hey, I... yeah i you know i feel like that was a solvable problem by other people like they that wouldn't have taken hey node folk if you were listening to this do better we love you but do better <laughs> yeah to be fair i am a node person so i should probably give a give it a crack myself but you know how javascript it's a bit of an anarchy uh in terms of how it's run so um yeah it's uh, one of those ones that yeah you got to be careful particularly um Early on, if you're if if you've got a public uh, repo, not that I want to discourage anyone from putting their code online, but especially GitHub now offers private repos for free. Maybe do it private first, then audit it yourself manually, mm-hmm. and then make it public. A bit of a tip if you want one, listeners out there, and um, there's a really great set of tools, things like Trufflehog, which is free, open source. This is just a little script you download. Um, and it will scan the code that you're putting into your code base for secrets and things before it commits. So mm-hmm. you can put it on a pre-commit hook. And then it will stop you before you even get yourself in trouble. So uh, truffle hug, free of charge, go use that. That sounds like the solution to a lot of my problems. So that link will be in the description as well because I will have installed it on uh, to my <laughs> pre-commit hook um, by the time uh, by the time the show is edited. I'm sure. Cool. Well, you have to report back with progress. <laughs> yeah, I will. Um, and so, in, in terms of uh, cybersecurity. Was there anything in particular that got you really interested in that versus any other? Because obviously the tech world is so mm. wide. There's so many different things you could do. Um, was there anything that really made cybersecurity appeal? So cybersecurity was another accident. Now, I was at the time working for a large government organization. Um, and we I was doing a lot of big system stuff. And it was great. It was fine. But I have this kind of curious brain where if I see buttons on a screen, I just naturally want to go, well, how many of these can I push at once? And what if I put a sandwich in there? And uh, and I, I'm kind of playful in the way I code. It's just sort of who I am. And my boss at the time, my team leader, was like, hey, Laura, you're a nice person and all, but this is really annoying. You keep finding all these bugs. And like this is so out of scope for what we were looking at right now. And you know, we're talking 20 years ago, so like security wasn't really a big thing. They were like, there's this weird team. They live in the basement, literally. Um, and they do security stuff, and they do this stuff all the time. Why don't you go talk to them? And so I went to meet with an offensive security team, so what we'd call penetration testers mostly, um, and realized that there was a, a kind of secret superpower you had if you could build systems and you were curious and creative. And you could start using systems in different ways. And that sometimes the fallout of this is what we now know as security vulnerabilities. Um, And so I kind of ended up on this pathway where I was spending half of my time breaking systems, um, everything from TV networks through to um, internal health tracking apps for telcos, Um, and then trying to figure out, well, how do we make this not happen again? So I was kind of scratching both sides of my brain at the same time. And that's kind of where I've headed. So 
I did that for a number of years, ended up as a consultant and an author. And now I try and do that to help as many engineering teams as possible learn how to do it so that you don't need someone like me to come along. You can become annoying to your team leader too. <laughs> that's, that's really cool. And you managed to scratch your itch of both the attack and the defense. And that kind of leads yeah. me into my next question about what you're working on now, which I was looking up. I was having a little like LinkedIn stalk of your company now, and it is it's really cool and really exciting. Um, so tell me, what what's SafeStack? So we are, we're 20 people, so we're really little. So anyone's like, this is not the big sales pitch you're expecting to happen here. We're, <laughs> we're essentially a group of people who, in COVID, when COVID hit in New Zealand, we had big lockdowns. And we had a 94% drop in our revenue as consultants. And we were like, oh, right. So we all have home loans and you know kids and plants and things to look after. This is a terrible time to try and build a product company. So we went to build a product company. And we went from four people and an idea. And our idea was we wanted to um, make security something that all engineering teams could uh, do without specialists. So that it was just part built in what we do. So we're on a mission. There's 30 million software developers in the world right now. And it grows at a rate of about 1.2 million a year. And we are providing the skills and qualifications and interactions and a community so you can own security just like you do all those other illities when you build software. Okay, that yeah, that sounds really cool. So day to day at the moment, what what are you doing in terms of both the hands-on technical stuff and the non-technical stuff? So um, it's a real split. So um, on the practical side, um, our role is to be at the very edge of what software development teams are doing right now. So if you're starting to write these kind of systems in this sort of language in this sort of architecture style. We need to be there right now and understanding how security works there. Now, security guidance historically is written after the event. So, you know, the OWASP top 10, for example, which some of your listeners may have heard about through, you know, their travels. So that's the Open Web Application Security Project's top 10 vulnerabilities in software. That's a look backwards at the last 15 years of software vulnerabilities. It's great. It's a fantastic resource. But we're moving very fast in software. So I spend my time researching what we're building and how on earth you keep it safe. So a lot of my time at the moment this week is is how on earth do we do security in AI backed systems? Because there's a lot of that right now in machine learning systems, which is very, very different to how you would do it in a more traditional space. Uh, when I'm hands on the tool still, um, do a lot of work making sure that security is all the way through the pipeline. So whether you have a crazy idea and no code yet, or you've got a code base you haven't touched in you know, three years because it's live on the internet and actually it hasn't broken yet, there are little bits of security to each step. So either doing it directly myself, so setting up tools like Travel Hog that I mentioned earlier or SEMGRIP, um, or working with other teams to coach them and kind of understand their world so we can try and do tiny bits of security all the time so that we forget we're even doing it. The aim of security isn't to be this big, scary event where we say your baby's ugly and you should feel bad. It's to do lots of little checks and balances all the way through to help you go fast. Yeah, I like that approach. It's quite interesting because in the JavaScript world, um, I guess in the wider web dev world in general, like uh, a lot of us have started adopting uh, dependable and various tools like that where uh, obviously that's specific to dependencies where and in my day job uh, um, at work at the moment we're now doing a thing where every other Friday we commit to looking at our uh, dependable alerts and thinking like right okay how severe is this what's the vulnerability and it's been really cool because mm. what I like about it as well is it gives me opportunity to read into 
what the vulnerability means, how someone might exploit it. And it's given me a bit more of an understanding of both best uh, best practice around general web development security, but then also as well, how someone might go and attack, which I think everyone everyone who's into technology, even if they've never tried to hack someone before, they've always been curious about how it all works, you know? Absolutely. And I think one of the most powerful skills you can embrace as a software team, no matter how big or small you are, whether you have budgets or not, you really need nothing technical for this at all but is to learn to rob your own organization. Now, don't do crime. That's still crime. That's still illegal. But, you know, our attackers, the people who who are going to cause us harm, they think all the time, how do I get to my goal? Uh, My goal is money or fame or political uh, influence. How do I get to that? And then they plan routes to get to that. In engineering, we work the opposite way. We, we're we focused, we build this big system, but when we do our defense, we very rarely do it from the point of what has the value outwards. We just go, hey, we've got some SQL here, we should do some you know, protections. So bring your team together, map out as ugly as you want on a whiteboard what your architecture looks like. Think about who might want to do you harm and why, that why is super important. So is it money, fame, notoriety, all those kind of things. And then Figure out, if I was that person, if I was that group, how would I attack the system? Now, don't worry about the vulnerabilities. Don't worry about the technical side of it, because an attacker is very, very opportunistic. They didn't take any pathway to get there. And once you start playing around with that and planning your own bank robbery, if you will, um, you can start to see how defense becomes much more part of what an engineer does rather than just being kind of the finishing touches on a line of code. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense more. It's almost like we're building it into the application rather than just adding it on as an afterthought. Absolutely. And, you know, if you're going to, like like you say about walls, like if, if it's the medieval days, you know, there's a reason why they walled the city first. Um, so it make, makes, a lot of, makes a lot of sense, really. And um, I've, I've read all kinds of interesting stories about different ways people have attacked. Like uh, I love, uh, I'm sure you come across Darknet Diaries in the tech podcast space. Um, it's my favorite other than the code of career course it's my favorite uh favorite technology podcast and um it's the only i think it's the only pod that i have on actual alert actually that's a lie i have this on alerts because i make so many mistakes when i upload it uh and i want to double check it <laughs> but um i always have on it diaries on alert because it's just amazing a different um do they call it attack vectors is that is that the right mm-hmm, um, yeah. terminology that people yeah. go for what's the craziest one you've ever seen do you think uh casino robbery in the philippines uh, via an internet connected fish tank right so they took tens of millions of dollars from a casino uh, the money disappeared out into the community was never seen again and the initial attack vector was a fish tank placed on and the same network as um other crucial systems other financial systems now remember if you think about all the internet things connected devices that you buy for yourself how many of us actually ever patch them or ever even consider what yeah. the code is looking like? Half of them run their own like DNS servers and full-blown web servers on the device. And so everyone's busy kind of protecting the big casino systems over here. Nobody's protecting the fish tank. So, you know, audience at home, what's your fish tank? Um, there's a wonderful security researcher, um, Tavis Ormandy. Um, he used to, I don't know if he still does work for Project Zero at Google. And he, he got a little angry at Fitbit scales for a while. And he was uh, hacking networks via the Fitbit scales. So if any of you have a Fitbit set of scales at home, have you ever patched it? I certainly hadn't thought of that before Tavis decided to have a bad day and attack other people with mine. So, uh, yeah, it's it's funny when you start broadening it out and understanding that there's 
connectivity between every system that we install and build, even if it's one we bought for just a few pounds or dollars from, you know, the local hardware store. Mm. More money, more problems. You know, the modern version of that might be more systems, more problems. Um, oh, yeah. It's like puppies, right? You know, having a puppy's cute. You want to show your friends, but you've got to clean up after it. And if you've got 50 puppies, you're going to have a hell of a mess. Yeah, very true. And yeah, I mean, that certainly gives me second thoughts towards like purchasing a smart fridge or something like that, or at least maybe putting it on an automated update. But that's that's crazy. An automated fish tank. Wow. I mean, I guess there's a few things that you would try and mitigate. I mean, in relative layman's terms, I would say I would have a separate priority network for the financial systems and that kind of thing, and then have, you know, a standard network, like almost in shops where they have guest network and retail network. Absolutely. Um, but I mean, what what else could, could they have done to prevent the, uh, the casino heist? Yeah, it, it's interesting. I think there's probably a lot of very well-paid analysts who were paid by the casino to figure that out too. Um, but separation is always good. So understanding what can talk to what and what controls the boundaries between those areas. Because even when we have separate networks, it's often the case we need to transfer data between them for some reason or other. Um, looking at who has physical access to devices. So remember that in any form of security, physical security will win against any electronic attack. If you have physical access to a code base, if you have physical access to a mm -hmm. server, um, you can do a lot more in that space than you can do in any other circumstance. And because it's a fish tank and in a public place, you've got to think about, okay, well, could somebody actually mess with this? Is there a button? What happens if they pull the power cord out? Does it reset? Um, and it all feels a bit silly when you're talking about a fish tank. But when you start thinking about that in the terms of your real applications, you can start thinking about this in for any system. Like, for example, if you wrote the software that controls the automatic doors on a shopping centre or a, a mall, then you want to think about what happens when somebody physically messes with those doors or they take the power away. Do they lock automatically or do they open? And does it do the same thing at the same time of day or night? Does it have any contingency in place? And once you start thinking about this in any sort of system and that you will start seeing it everywhere, you start seeing how systems can be, it's not always even maliciously used. Sometimes it's just unexpected. It's just a circumstance we hadn't anticipated. Yeah, you, you think about these things when you see something like Mr. Robot, and I've always wondered how much of that sort of stuff is fictional, like the scene when they take over that lawyer's house, uh, when she's ordered the smart house, and they just destroy all the um, appliances inside it. But um, yeah, it's scary to think how much is possible, but also exciting on the flip side. And for people who maybe are scared by it and want to prevent it, uh, or excited by it and perhaps want to ethically, of course, um, partake in, uh, in pen testing. If, if they want to get into, into the industry in 2023, what, what would you advise them? So the first thing to remember is the industry is vast. So there's a lot of talk about people being penetration testers and red teamers because that's the glamorous side. I've hacked a thing, I broke into a thing, but it's, and forgive me, pen tester friends, if you're listening, as a pen tester, I love you, but it's a cheap trick. Because when when you break something, it's really easy to break things. Right? You you know, knock something off the table, you're going to break it. Easy. Fixing things, super hard. So the breaking things is very exciting and very rewarding. You get that big dopamine hit. But what you want to do is find the ways to then come back and repair. If you want to get into the space, there's a whole bunch of resources you can use. So um, we have a free plan, no strings, no credit cards. You can get in, just do some training today. So if you go to safestack.io, um, 
promise you as the CEO, I get to say that, um, you can just go sign up. And we've got a thousand organizations who do that. Um, you can bring up to 50 engineers, you can bring your whole team um, and just do it for free. Other things you can do, there's some amazing conference talks um, and they've been happening for you know 15 plus years that are just fun to watch and to explore and to think about. So some of the iconic ones are there's a talk from Charlie Miller that would have been 2015, uh, where he, it was some of the first um, what we call stunt hacks, but hacking um, the computer controls on a self-driving car and stopping that car on a highway with his friend at the wheel and his friend's kind of like, what? Um, don't do that, folks. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> Having a look at things like bug bounty programs via companies like BugCrowd, where you can be paid actual cash money to find vulnerabilities in the systems that people have said, hey, look, we open our doors. We welcome researchers. And BugCrowd and places like that have universities on their websites where you can actually learn the skills you'd need to do that. What I would encourage you to do is don't think of this as like a formal career pathway and a certification and things. You might get to that later. Think of it as something for exploring and playing with because this has to be a fun space. It's, you're basically taking on a career path where you have to learn every technology that's coming on right now and then find bugs in it. So you're never going to stop learning. You need to find that passion and play with it. Yeah, that philosophy for any technical skill is just so true. I was actually talking about this with uh, um, with someone who I know who's like a lead engineer and uh, on a JavaScript team, and we were saying it's just if you want to learn and improve, the best hack, no pun intended, is just to keep it fun. Like if you're working on something that you genuinely enjoy, you're genuinely passionate about it, or you think the solution could really do something, the hours will fly by, and you don't need to think of it. Doesn't feel like work, like you know it's one of those ones where just think about problem you want to solve or keep it enjoyable uh somehow like set challenges gamify it um and you know the the things you'll be able to do without even realizing like completely unconsciously because you've kept it interesting it's just the key yeah and let's face it we are in a global skill shortage now it has been a horrible period of layoffs in places like the u.s at the moment and some some overseas as well but on the whole, there are still way more software jobs out there than there has ever been. So if you're sat, you know, writing tax software like I was when I was 17 and it's not really your happy place, but you wanted to be an astronaut when you were a kid, then go work in space tech. There's enough software jobs there at the moment. If you want to be involved in self-driving cars or predicting and, and diagnosing uh, illnesses with computers, there are literally jobs in that right now. And I think this is an incredibly exciting time to be an engineer, whether it's as somebody building systems or someone securing them, because this is the sci-fi future we grew up reading about and watching on TV, and we are hands-on involved in creating it. And that's awesome. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And like, despite the macroeconomic environment, which is affecting every industry, not just technology, it's just technology is a major industry that, you know, without getting too into the specifics of it, a lot of the companies um, are struggling because of stock prices and that kind of thing. And that's why they let people go rather than the advancements, because we are simultaneously living in a period of incredible advancement uh, with particularly artificial intelligence. And this wouldn't be a technology podcast that us bringing it up at one point. Um, I mean, you must have a, I guess you have a lot of opinions on that, uh, on a security standpoint. What, what, what do you think of stuff like ChatGPT in a security context? I, so full disclosure audience, I did a degree in artificial intelligence at Aberystwyth University. Before that was a career path. This was what we call bad planning. Um, but now it's a legitimate career path. So funnily enough, I get to bring back skills I thought were long gone. 
Um, I'm both incredibly excited by it and also very nervous about it at the same time. And it is a very, it's a very conflicted state. So like things like co-pilots and assisted coding or assisted design are really great for speeding up things. Like nobody wants to do the, you know, the very boring nuts and bolts bits of an application. There's a reason we build libraries to, to short circuit these things. And, you know, all we're doing is taking the next step forward into that. Um, however, there's the difficulty in security with AI-based systems is in a traditional system, if you write some code you, and your code takes in an orange and it does three steps and out the other end comes an apple, you can pretty much predict that every time you put in an orange, an apple will come out. And if you put in a banana, it'll throw an exception. But in AI-based systems where we've got these either specifically trained or more general learning models, they are intentionally designed to be more flexible, to be more creative, to take different input and give us different output that suits very nuanced conditions. And that means as someone in security where we like to do threat assessment, so understand all of the pathways through something and what could go wrong, it becomes very, very difficult for us to say, okay, there are seven paths through this and two of them are dangerous and we should fix it because it's non-deterministic now, it's non-linear. And so we're having to start thinking about this in different ways. Um, how do we trust the data that the model was trained on? What is the effect that, that prompts have? And how will the model adjust over time to the prompts it sees? And so, yeah, big challenge, big hard challenge, kind of scary to security nerds. So if you do have a security nerd in your company, they may well be a little bit nervous about the GPT thing right now. So just, you know, buy them cake or something. Um, but what we're trying to do is understand how something so infinitely complex and you know vast in terms of its capability can be understood in a way that we can reduce the risk. So uh, be kind to them because they're probably having a bit of an existential crisis right now. Yeah, it, it's interesting because you, traditionally, like you said, like with the apple and oranges example about how generally the way, the way we write software, like, I, I mean, I'm sure I hope my employees are okay with me saying this. I'm working on some supply chain automation uh, software at the moment at work. And, you know, everything's just ifs. And if I, you know, if the control flow goes wrong, then I know exactly what's happened. And I've sent a lorry of, um, of, of, of consignments to the wrong side of the country. Um, but I can track what's going on there. But if under the hood, from what I understand with these systems, it's, it's like a black box and it's not like if statements, like it, it's, I, well, I mean, I'm, I'm exposing my, my lack of knowledge around it, but I guess that's just why it makes it just so difficult to predict and so difficult to mitigate yeah. those risks. And in the logistics space, um, it's really particularly interesting because you've got a whole bunch of challenges in the supply chain that, you know, routing things on roads, um, navigating warehouses and where you store things and picking orders from warehouses to put on consignment loads. All of those things you can be very adaptive to the specific conditions on the roads in that moment in time. And those conditions, all of those things that have been used to make the judgment are not included in your code. They're included in the model. And so, yeah, it becomes quite difficult to debug um, because as time changes, as the inputs change into the model, so does the model. So you're debugging something right now may not behave the same way as, you know, a week from now. And so when it comes to incident response or handling issues, we're going to be, I think we're going to be in the time of heavy exploration as we try and figure out 
how best to approach this. And so we're very, very early in the piece. So it's a kind of be patient and just try some stuff. It's not going to be perfect, but be aware that all the things we've taken for granted because our code base was predictable, even if it was complex, um, are going to be more difficult to rely on. Yeah. And it, another aspect of this that worries me on the security side of things, like I've been seeing a lot of TikToks recently and they're very, they're very silly TikToks. Basically they're, they're using the software that is able to uh, kind of fake voices of, of real people and stitch together stuff. And it will be generally speaking, the TikToks are uh, gaming footage with a simulated voice chat of like random celebrities that are playing games. So it might be um, Joe Rogan, Barack Obama, um, and uh, the the Queen um, actually uh, was was one I saw. They were playing Counter Strike uh, the other day on, on on TikTok, and I was like, "This is funny," but this is also really scary because I, if I didn't know any better, I wouldn't think that they were. Uh, you know, I could have believed they were playing Counter Strike, and the kind of unethical use cases of that around stuff like impersonation and and that sort of thing is is genuinely really scares me, especially in combination with the text-based stuff as well. Do you think there's anything uh, people can do at the moment to uh, to kind of mitigate that? Or, or, is that, or is that very much like stuff we're going to have to think about over the next few years? It's very rapidly emerging. Now, if you think about phishing, for example, so, you know, you're sending an email um, pretending to be somebody else or another organization. And I'm choosing an intentionally very simple example for this. Now, back in the day, our guidance for spotting those was, you know, look for spelling mistakes and look for the URL and all that kind of thing. But now you can literally ask a trained AI engine, hey, here's an example email from this company. Write me another email in the style that asks somebody to give me this piece of information. And off it will go. And it will do a pretty good job of it. Now, humans, all of us, myself included, all security people included, we are bad at spotting a well constructed fake um we're just we're not wired for it um you just have to watch those cheesy shows on netflix like is it cake to notice that we we just really even on a cake level we cannot do this so then there's a bigger question of if we can't spot deep fakes as well as humans because naturally we just aren't able to then are there any technologies that can help us to do that and how reliable will those technologies be and then you end up in an arms race sort of situation so I think, you know, firstly, play with the tools, even if you're not evil and trying to take over the world, go and play with them and try and create a fake uh, because it's going to help you. It's going to help you understand how a threat actor or a bad person or a bad group is going to act. And only then can you start thinking about how big and complex that challenge is. And if I'm honest, the solution to that challenge isn't with security folk like me. It's with engineers because this is going to be an engineering problem, not just a pure security one. It's going to take all 30 million of us to solve it. I guess that means for all the people that are worried about how, you know, there's not going to be any jobs anymore. I feel like with the rise of AI, if anything, it's going to create more jobs uh, in all areas of engineering, because now we need to wrangle this AI, basically. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. We, I absolutely agree that there are some jobs that will be impacted. You know, content writing, where you're writing social media posts on loop, you don't need to do that and sit there as a human and do that anymore. But um, there are whole bunches of emerging career pathways now coming out. So if you're even in the slightest bit curious, play, because that play you're going to do now could very well turn into a career that didn't exist last week, but might exist next year. So, yeah, it's exciting. 
Yeah, and that's always good advice for literally anything in the technology industry where if something looks cool, have a play around with it if it's new because you never know, it could end up becoming something that pays you incredibly well uh, if you enjoy using it anyway. Uh, if you're an early adopter, like, um, I don't know if it was just like an isolated event and uh, this isn't security related, it's, it's to do with mobile development, but um, when I was a recruiter, towards the end of the time I was recruiting, so it would have been 2017 or so, there was this weird niche market in london of react native contractors there was like none of them and everyone wanted them and there were people with one year experience charging over a thousand pounds a day although it's funny actually you mentioned cobol earlier i heard something about people going into banks and getting paid thousands per day on uh, working on legacy cobol systems because they were so important. A- absolutely it, right now in new zealand there are at least 10 cobol vacancies open and they are open because the people who previously held those jobs have retired or sadly passed away yeah you know, we're at the point where we have critical infrastructure inside banking systems, uh, government organizations, that there's genuinely nobody alive who knows how they work anymore. So yeah, you could go learn Kerbal too, if you want, like you can either go, it could be like the vintage thing. You know, you could go new wave with the AI or embrace vintage, go rockabilly and learn Kerbal. Um, Mm. Maybe that's a valid plan. Yeah, and this may be a a basic question. but I'm trying to think of the answer now. What is the reason why these systems haven't been upgraded? Is it because they're impossible to upgrade or is it because just any downtime would just be such a disaster? Um, so the, there's a few reasons. The downtime would be a disaster and most of these systems are working at a scale and complexity that you really can't comprehend. Um, taxation mm-hmm. systems are a really interesting example. The amount of data flowing between them at any one point is vast um, and it's it's very hard to replace a system if you can't map out exactly the complexity and the load and the things that it's under and we don't have the knowledge or tooling to do that for some of these old ones plus they're not broken they, you know there's this the old rule if it's not broken don't fix it um, and they might be ugly and they may not be the most you know future forward systems but they work very well and so if you were a large bank and you're looking at down the you know billions of dollars in recoding your platform underneath it all and that core infrastructure, that's going to be a really difficult decision to justify that investment if it's not really going to enable growth of your business. And because we operate in a, a system that you know does link those two, I work on things because my business will grow is normally the the way it goes. Then you can see why they may not be willing to kind of go down that route. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Did you see about the FAA back in January where apparent this, the rumor is an intern deleted a Fortran file or something and it grounded all the planes in America for a whole morning? I, I wish I, I couldn't believe that. I can totally believe that being the case. Um, um, so once upon a time uh, in a small island I can't name that I definitely don't live in, um, a whole TV network was taken off air for two hours because a hinge was installed backwards on a gate and somebody was able to wander in and just start messing around with buttons. So wow. there you go. Yeah. It's, and it just goes show it starts with physical security, right? Like Physical and old school premises. things. Yep. Yeah, I think that's what's so awesome about cybersecurity is just you get that mixture of literal physical security and um, you get these people that will do physical penetration tests while they go into the building and get past the doors. But then also as well, you have the proper like uh, like coded security, I guess would be the best way of doing it. And then mm. you have the social engineering aspect. There's just so much goes into it that uh, 
yeah, it's just, there's no wonder that there's been so much cool fiction written about it. Yeah, absolutely. And if you were going to take something back to your coding career to, you know, to link to your title from all of that, the excitement's good. And those areas are really interesting. But remember, you don't have to be in those roles to think like that. Um, you can think about any system you're building in the same way. You can plan the little Hollywood heists in your head um, and turn those into actionable things you can fix. So don't think it's something for other people. It really isn't. Engineers have such an incredible skill set to begin with that all we're doing is changing a thought process, giving you some extra ways to think about your systems and therefore, you know, protect them. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's a fantastic way of putting it. And um, I think um, we may have come to the end of the actual slot that I've booked, I've just realized. Um, but if you've got a few more minutes, do you have any kind of final bits of advice you'd give to engineers, uh, both old and new, who are keen to <laughs> either develop their initial or, or expand their existing cybersecurity? Um, skills. Yep. Uh, so my first bit of advice, there is something that in security we, will, we call the pit of despair. And that's when you learn to find security vulnerabilities, you'll start seeing them everywhere. Um, you just can't help it. Every system you use, whether you're building it or just using it as a customer. Um, and you'll reach the top of this mountain of vulnerabilities that you found and realize how difficult it is to fix them all. And this is what we call the pit of despair in front of you. The most important thing you can do is not give up at that point. The world is terrible. All of our systems are terrible and a glorious mess of things. You can't change that, but you can pick off one thing at a time and treat security like a little ongoing journey. So we're not trying to run a marathon. We're trying to do just one little step every day. So if you aim for one hour of security every sprint, that would be quite a lot if we all did that. Now, the other thing I'd like you to think about is there's the code you write every day and then there's the code that you have previously written and is no longer being built or deployed. Now, those bits that are static, that are no longer being built, all of those nice tools you put into your DevSecOps lifecycle, if you have one, they're not being run on it anymore because that code's not being built. So always remember with your defenses, don't just factor for the code that's actively being changed right now, but any code that is alive in your ecosystem, inside your system, because that might mean you need to think about those bits that are you know, a little bit older or that you worked on last year but haven't touched since. Because security vulnerabilities continue to be found even on code that is no longer changing. Uh, finally, find other people to connect with. Security is a community. There's uh, a lot of us out there. A lot of us who live in the AppSec meets engineering space. And what we love most of all is people coming to us and saying, you're wrong. I did this thing and something else happened because you have to continuously learn. So find your people, find your people you feel safe to say, I have no idea what I'm doing. What did you do? And um, then we'll all get a bit stronger together. That's awesome. And if people want to find out more about SafeStack and maybe learn, uh, maybe take on some of your free resources that, uh, that, that you mentioned, what's the best way to, uh, to find SafeStack? Yep, um, just straightforward online. We're on Twitter's at SafeStack, no funny characters in there. Um, and on our website is just safestack.io. And as I said, we have a free plan. It can take up to 50 developers for your organization and it gives you the foundation courses you, courses you would need to get started with security. So no tricks, no gimmicks, not trying to sell you anything. But if we can all do a little bit of security, then I'm going to be able to retire early and live on a beach. So that would be quite nice. Um, so I hope to see you all there. 
I'll, I'll be there as well. That, that sounds, that sounds fantastic. And, um, yeah, uh, I think we can all, we can all get on board with doing a bit of security each week and retiring on a beach. That sounds like an ideal plan, but yeah, thanks again so much for your time, Laura. It's been really awesome speaking and finding out more about an aspect of technology. To be honest, I didn't know that much about, and in just 45 minutes, I've learned a ton. So thank you so much. Oh, you're quite welcome. It's been a lot of fun. Great. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of The Coder Career. Uh, please do feel free to join our Discord, thecodercareer.com slash Discord, if you want to connect with the community. See you next time.